Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hello, Antioch family. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors on our team, and I'm grateful for this opportunity to spend some time looking at Scripture today with you all. In terms of where we are at in the church calendar, we are in the second Sunday in Lent during this special season leading up to Easter. Just as we talked about the season of Advent being a time of preparation for Christmas, Lent is how we prepare for Easter. It's a time of self-examination, reflection, and it mimics the 40 days that Jesus spent out in the wilderness. Last week, we had the opportunity to hear from Pete as he kicked off the season and looked at that story of Jesus in the wilderness. But this week, we are going to do something a little different. We are not going to be focusing on the gospel passage, which I feel a little bad about because Julia was the one who read it, but we'll be primarily focusing on the passage from Genesis, which is then interpreted in our New Testament passage by Paul in the book of Romans. Since we'll be looking at two decent-sized passages, we won't be diving into every single word, but I believe that God has a lot to say to you and me today through the synthesis of these passages and a few key themes. So let's dive in. Setting the table a little bit for these passages, we'll begin in Genesis, which is of course the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, often called the primeval history, tells the story of creation, Adam and Eve, Noah and the flood, and so on. Once we get into chapter 12 through the remainder of the book of Genesis, the story it narrows in and focuses on Abraham, his family, and his descendants. Known as Abram at the time, he is called in chapter 12 to leave his hometown of Ur and travel to Canaan, a place he has never been with the promise of having land, a nation, a great name, and blessings for him and his family. Our story picks up in chapter 17 like this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Jumping down to 15 and 16, it says, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. There are a few things that stand out in this passage. And one of the first things we see, and if we're honest, we're experiencing some shock at, is the age of Abraham, 99 years old. As mentioned previously, Abraham's story began in chapter 12 as God had promised to give him and Sarah an heir, which was 25 years in the past. Since that time, the couple had remained childless together. 
In the middle, we get the story of Hagar and Ishmael. But for Sarah and Abraham, if having a son together felt extremely unlikely 25 years ago, now that they are 90 and 99 years old, respectively, it surely feels impossible. One of the important themes we will see in this passage that I want to focus on is the importance of names. So I wonder, have you ever thought about where your name comes from? Have you ever asked your parents where you named after a family member or a friend or maybe an important person in history? Or, or maybe your name means something specific like light or warrior or something cool. I, I remember wondering that about my name. As the youngest of three boys, it was easy for me to look at my older brothers and, and see where their names came from. My oldest brother is a third, so he was named after my dad, who was named after my paternal grandfather. And my other brother, he was named after my maternal grandfather. So I guess by the time I came around, my parents had kind of run out of grandfathers to name me after. I remember asking my mom how my parents settled on Sean. My middle name is James, and that's my uncle's name, so I knew where that came from. But I couldn't find any Sean's in the family tree. And when I asked my mom, she'd always tell me she just really liked the name. She liked how it sounded. She, she felt like it was a good fit. And then one day, my uncle was telling me a story from their childhood, and he casually mentioned that, that growing up, he and my siblings and my mom, they had a dog named Sean. So I had to learn the hard way that I was named after a dog. Now, my understanding was that he was a really good boy, though. So I got that going for me. Now, I know my mom is watching this and is horrified at me telling this story. So I do have to say, Mom, I believe you when you say that you didn't name me after a dog. But it's still so funny to think about. And I love you very much. So back to the text and names. We see the importance of names even in how God speaks to Abraham saying, I am God Almighty. The Hebrew here is El Shaddai. And you have to remember, we haven't had the experience of Moses at the burning bush yet. That doesn't come until we get into the book of Exodus. So while Yahweh is the name that Israel would come to know this God, Abraham would not have used this name yet. El Shaddai is used instead because that's more like what Abraham would have used. And while we translate it as the Almighty, most literally it means God, the one of the mountains, kind of like a majestic name. And for Abraham, this God would truly need to be Almighty to bring about a child for him and Sarah, let alone descendants and nations and all of these big promises. So God's name is important here. But we also get to hear about a name change for both Abraham and Sarah from Abram and Sarai. In the ancient world, the giving of a new name was meant to signify a new status or, or, or a new stage in a relationship. This isn't just something from the ancient world. Think about someone like Muhammad Ali. He was born Cassius Clay, but he changed his name following a profound spiritual experience and felt that it signified a commitment to a new life. Even though only subtle changes were made for Abram and Sarai, it was signifying of this new phase of life and who God was calling them to be. The name Abram meant exalted father. But when God gave him the new name of Abraham, it now meant father of a multitude or father to many nations. This new name was indicative of the promise God gave Abraham and he felt his name should reflect that truth. 
When we look at the name Sarai, there isn't a scholarly consensus on what this name meant. Most believe it was just a typical name, a common name that people would be used to hearing. However, when her name was changed to Sarah, this new name meant princess or queen. She was going to be the mother of nations that give birth to kings and to rulers. As we'll see in just a moment, Sarah was vital for God's restorative plans in the world. God tells Abraham he is making a covenant with him and ultimately with Sarah as well. This covenant was originally promised in Genesis 12 when God first called Abraham. It's further discussed in Genesis 15 and it's fleshed out here in Genesis 17 within our text and in the subsequent verses. Basically, this is now a formal commitment that ratifies what God had already promised to Abraham. And what makes up this covenant? That Abraham would have many descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky. That God will give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan. The sign of this covenant is circumcision, and it is an everlasting covenant, not bound by time. This covenant has some big picture theological implications, not only for the original audience, but for us today. With this big promise and commitment God has formalized Abraham, he spells out one thing that is especially clear for what the end goal of this blessing is. God tells Abraham that he is blessed to be a blessing, that all nations and people of the earth will be blessed through him. What this means is that God is breaking down barriers of exclusivity. This almighty God who will come to know as Yahweh is not only the God of Abraham and Sarah or only the God of Israel. He is the God of the universe and all people are his people. Second, we see that being in a relationship with God is not about what that privileged status does for the individual, but what it means for others. That we take the blessings that God gives us, just as Abraham and Sarah do, and extend towards others. In this way, it becomes less about what is due to me or what my rights are, but how I can use my liberty or what I've been given for the sake of others. What I especially love here is the emphasis that God is making on Sarah in the story. Admittedly, sometimes it can be hard to read some of these Old Testament passages of a reflection of the culture of the time in their understanding of women. Women were often understood as property or possessions owned by men and not central players in the story. However, the more that we dive into these passages, we see the ways in which God has been pulling people away from that mindset. Whether it's creating men and women from the same stuff in Genesis or emphasizing Sarah's role here within this all-important covenant, God is pulling his people closer to a fuller picture, a restorative picture of men and women together. Because the reality is, at this point in the story, Abraham has a son. Technically, his line could continue because of the son he has that he had with his slave Hagar called Ishmael. But God makes it clear that his promise to Abraham has not been fulfilled through Ishmael. The real covenant with God could only be carried out through the union of Abraham's seed and Sarah's womb, making Sarah an indispensable part of the story. This covenant does not happen without her. As her new name attests, she is royalty, and this big story cannot happen without her. God affirms that Sarah also will be blessed and that she too will give rise 
to nations. So this almighty God tells Abraham to walk before me faithfully and be blameless. This idea of walking before God is best understood as as living your life, to walk in the ways of God. Later on in the Old Testament canon, we'll, we'll see walking in the ways of God described like this in the book of Micah, to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly. We'll dive into this more, but he is told to make sure to pair orthopraxis, which is right actions, with orthodoxy, right belief. They come together. But I think the troubling part of this directive from God is when he says that Abraham is to be blameless, because that seems either impossible or some serious hyperbole. What we see by the word used for blameless here is that it's best understood as being wholly committed to God's ways. God doesn't expect Abraham to be sinless. If you think back to different stories you know about Abraham, I'm sure you could come up with a few poor choices both before and after this interaction with God. I mean, on two separate occasions, he lies about Sarah being his wife, basically offering her up to their captors. Abraham makes mistakes. He was not sinless at this point, and he won't be sinless in the future. His trust in God has certainly wavered at certain points. So why is he chosen for this special covenant? What is it about Abraham? Well, our passage in Romans today helps answer that for us. The Apostle Paul is writing here to the community of Christians in Rome, trying to articulate what it means to walk in the ways of God. More specifically, what does walking in the ways of God have to do with the law? Because there was this large controversy about whether Gentile converts to the faith needed to fulfill the law first by being circumcised. Paul tries to clear that up, so let's take a look. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. We see that it was Abraham's faith in God that made him righteous. That's what stood out about him. Not that he was able to avoid sinning or or sin less than others. It was only through his faith in God that he was made righteous. Paul is reminding us that righteousness is not something we can achieve on our own. We cannot gain it by doing certain things. We cannot work for it. We can only access it through faith. If we try and access it through the law, we will only find emptiness and failure. Paul goes on to say that for this reason it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. In the 5th century there was a big Christian controversy about this very idea. To to sum it up very briefly, there was a belief called Pelagianism, named after the guy who invented it, Pelagius, that taught that individuals have the ability to achieve perfection. They can live sinless lives without divine grace. He believed in the power of free will so much that he thought if someone had enough faith, they could decide to lead a sinless life. They could earn their way to God. If you just put your head down, if you denied yourself enough, you could do enough to be with God. As Christians in 2021, we might fairly easily look back on Pelagianism and say, but it's ridiculous, right? Jesus was and is the only person who could live a sinless life. 
grace is necessary. We know our spiritual laws, right? While we recognize this heresy for what it is, and now we might have a name to call it, I think that we can tend to still live our lives with the Pelagian mindset. I know that I can get caught in this rut. So my question for us to ponder today, do we live our lives on the promise of faith? When we think about our relationship with God, do we think about it in terms of resting on grace? Because we tend to be really good legalists. Life is a whole lot simpler that way. If, if I do X, then I get rewarded. If I do enough good things, God will give me what I want. Or, or maybe more often we think, if I don't do X, then I avoid punishment. If I say no to these things that Christians should say no to, God won't punish me. Throwing grace into that equation tends to mess up the whole formula because we get it all mixed up. We tend to think if we just do the right things or avoid the wrong things, then our faith will grow and so will our relationship with God. Instead, we see that when we start with faith, that these other things fall into place. When we start from grace and faith and relationship, we experience the fullness of a life with God and everything else falls into place. When we approach God this way, with a mindset of abundance rather than scarcity, everything looks different. The law gets put in its proper place that out of the overflow of an abundant relationship with God, good works flow naturally. Not because we have to, not because we should, not because it will earn me favor with God, not because it's a part of some bargain I've made to get that job or a parent to be healed or to pass that test, but because this is what life to the full looks like. So what do we take away from all this discussion of names and covenants and righteousness and the law and grace? Well, first, we realize like Abraham and Sarah that we have been blessed to be a blessing. And we want the world to experience blessing through us. So as we engage in self-reflection, we have to ask ourselves, is my life a blessing to others? Not in a shameful or a legalistic way, but Scripture tells us that people should know that we are followers of Jesus because of our love. If we aren't known for our love, it's time for us to repent and course correct. As Christians in America, I think we have a lot of work to do on this front, but it has to start on the individual level. And maybe as a part of that journey, what we need to realize is just like Abraham and Sarah, God has changed our names too. For some of us, We have spent our lives walking around with names we've given ourselves, like inadequate, or failure, or unlovable, or disappointment, or not enough. We believe the lie that we have to try harder, or maybe believe the lie that you can do it all on your own. We see in Abraham and Sarah, it doesn't matter what names we have or given our children. What matters is that God names us. God takes whatever name we may have been given or given ourselves, and he says, your new name is Beloved. Because this is the name that encapsulates who you are to me and my promises to take care of you and not to harm you. This is the name that recognizes the covenant God has made with us and a pattern of promises throughout Scripture that anyone who believes in him will live life to the full. That walking with God is not about getting it right all of the time, but being wholly committed to his ways. It's choosing to live 
in grace. Julia's grandfather was a pastor for 40 years, and her dad has been digitizing his vast library of sermons. So periodically, he'll send us sermons he listens to, and whenever he sends us a new sermon, he always says, this is definitely one of the top five sermons he ever preached. Of course, he says that about like 50 different sermons, so math exactly isn't his thing, but he sent us a sermon a few weeks ago that talked about how as Christians, we can tend to live our lives with a fear of grace. As ridiculous as that sounds, the law is simpler. That's easier math. But a quote he said kept coming back into my head as I was preparing this sermon. And he said, the way that we overcome this mindset is to step out into the dark with God to see his foundation is grace, his basis is love, and it's better than all the law put together. The season of Lent is traditionally a time of examination and confession to examine our lives to see if we are walking uprightly or in the context of our text today that we are walking in the ways of God. The tradition of giving something up for Lent developed out of the idea that you would abstain from certain items or practices that prevent you from faithfully and fruitfully living out the Christian life. So in this time of examination, as you think about whether you are walking in the ways of God, what might you need to give up to encounter God in the depth of His love? Is it the belief that you have to earn God's love? That you need to earn your righteousness? Is it that life is simpler with the law? Is it a fear of grace? Whatever it is that is getting in the way of you experiencing the grace of God, the fullness of living in His love, I pray that you would set that aside in this season, that you would confess the ways in which you have gone astray and that you would experience the freedom of being deeply known and loved by God today as he named you his beloved. And one of the best ways and most tangible ways we can experience and encounter God is through the practice of communion. Pastor Linda will be leading us through that experience. So as we prepare, would you please join me in a prayer of confession? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen.